So we have the difference between 637 and A25 multiplied by the size of the contract, which we want. Okay, so A25 is worse than 16, but still, still okay. Still profitable. Still profitable. And then the most interesting part begins because we didn't get paid. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To join me, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and sign up for my free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter where I share how to reduce risk and create, grow, and protect your wealth. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guest Igor Yelnik. Igor, are you ready to join the mission? Yes, I am. Hello, Andrew. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to bring you to my audience. And, you know, you have a distinguished background. I want to just introduce you to the audience. Igor Yelnik founded, oh, how do I say it? Al... Alphidence Capital. Alphidence Capital in 2020 and holds the position of CEO and CIO. Alphidence is a systematic macro hedge fund management firm based in London. Previously, Igor was the CIO for ADG Capital Management from 2013 to 2019. Prior to that, he spent nine years at IPM, Informed Portfolio Management, where he was a partner and head of portfolio management and research. Before this, Igor co-founded St. Petersburg Capital, an asset management firm that specialized in the Russian securities market, and later Unibase Invest, a managed futures business based in Tel Aviv. So Igor, take a moment and tell us about the unique value that you are bringing to this wonderful world. Well, I think that the thing which I'm doing is reasonably unique. We are running a strategy, an investment strategy, which is called systematic macro, and there are many systematic macro firms. However, we believe that the investment approach that we are using is relatively unique because we are using fundamental macroeconomic indicators to forecast asset returns. So you can think about it as macro quantified. So we're thinking about things which a discretionary macro manager would think about, but they would take their decisions on a discretionary basis. And we try to quantify them to build models out of those macroeconomic indicators and trade based on those models. When you started off in the business many years ago, were you already really models based or were you doing it in a different way and then you came to appreciate the value of models? No, when we started, it was very early days of the securities market in Russia, because I'm originally from St. Petersburg, Russia, mm -hmm. which is a beautiful city. Yeah. But it was really very, very early days. Berlin Wall had just fallen. The Soviet Union lost the Cold War. And the securities market had just appeared. And we were one of the first firms in Russia to do that. And in those days, we didn't even hear about quantitative management. So everything we did was discretionary. And we started with fundamental analysis of companies and traded their stocks based on our discretionary views. And this was a really valuable experience, which helped me a lot to form a systematic manager later on in my career. Mm. And when you say discretionary views, I guess what you're talking about is that you're forming opinions about something and saying, 
I like the management of this company, or I like the way things are going, or I think earnings are going to rise, or I like this particular market because of that, as opposed to a quantitative way of saying it is that I'm neutral on this. Show me out of the quant what is you know the way to go with this. How would you describe that? Yeah, I think you're right. And in in discretionary management, when you trade single names, single name companies, you don't trade indices. You form an opinion about how this particular company is going to develop, whether they they are going to take on new markets, whether they're going to lose some markets. You think about whether this development is already reflected in price because you are not alone in the market. There are a lot of smart people around you and they say exactly the same things as you do and maybe more. And you should always assume that you are not the smartest guy on the market. And some people have access to inside information, especially in the wild days of Russia or the 90s. So it was, you analyze, you make your forecasts, you control your risks, and you you made your, you make your decisions based on that. And on top of that, we used to trade the Russian ruble, and we also used to trade Russian bonds, those infamous GKOs, which are short-term bonds, on which Russia defaulted in 98. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that. I was in Thailand in 1997 crisis, where the Thai currency fell by about 60% in 1997. And then 1998, we had what the default that happened in Russia, I remember, was, but it didn't seem to shake the rest of the world at that point. But I think, it, you know, it had it had an impact. Certainly in Asia, we had a big impact from that crisis. So, Well, I would probably disagree with you regarding shaking the world. Mm. And actually, when we think about it, what happened in that time was the Asian crisis in October 1997, I think. I remember very well sitting at a hotel room and watching the U.S. market when things had just evolved in in Asia. And I was sitting there just glued to the TV screen and watching watching Dow Jones falling like every minute, like there was no way up. And then Clinton spoke something trying to soothe the markets and it was incredible. Mm. And I think this was the beginning of the Russian crisis because the oil prices started to go down and this put a very significant pressure on the currency and also on um, on the equity market. And then when Russia defaulted, just three weeks later, we had the LTCM crisis. And you know this, when people speak about the 98 crisis, people speak about it as the LTCM crisis or as the Russia slash LTCM crisis. But LTCM followed directly from Russia, credit spreads widened, and here we go. Mm. Fixed income arm would just, you know, fails. You know, it's interesting to think about what's happening in the world these days when I look at the risks that are appearing in the banking industry. You know, the Fed moved up interest rates so aggressively that it just seems like something's got to break and things are starting to break. And when you think about what happened in Asia when when we went into a recession, if the US goes into recession, then, you know, the whole world gets impacted by that. I'm just curious, from a macro perspective, how are you looking at the world today? Let's say we're recording this on March 16th, 2023. What's your outlook for the next, I don't know, six months or three months or 12 months or whatever is that you look at? 
I think that the current crisis started in 2008. And the way central banks extinguished the fire in 2008 was injecting megatons of liquidity into the market and keeping the interest rates at incredibly low levels. A couple of years ago, you would pay for the privilege to hold, let's say, German bonds for the next 30 years, which is incredible, right? This had never happened before in the human history. And this was a situation where this was the environment where the assets were mispriced because the money was mispriced. Mm. And at some point, sooner or later, this had to surface. And it surfaced now, of course, with high inflation. It was unclear when exactly it was about to go up, but it was very clear that it would go up. And you're saying that the central banks have been very aggressive in hiking interest rates. To be honest, I thought that they could probably do it a little bit earlier and a little bit more aggressively. But eventually, it means that the bonds which sit on banks' balance sheets and which are not marked to market for some peculiar reason, I still don't understand it, when liquid assets are not marked to market. So this created a liquidity gap. Like if you have a bond which matures in 30 years, which sits in your portfolio at par value, and you can't sell it at par value today, then obviously it's a problem. Mm. So what's going to happen, in my opinion, and I very well may be wrong about it, mm. but I don't think that central banks are going to let any significant bank fail. One way or another, banks will be bailed out. Whatever the governments and central banks say, eventually it comes out of the taxpayers' money, even if the mechanism, the direct mechanism, does not is is not based on taking money immediately out of the state coffers. So this means more liquidity. This means more inflation, and I don't think that we are going to see inflation going down to two percent in the next year. I can't see how this can happen. I think that we are going to see high inflation in Japan, and this is one of the countries where the where the asset mispricing has been tremendous. I mean, it, it's just out of the ordinary. Mm. The Bank of Japan owns more than 50% of all Japanese government bonds, which is sort of not normal. This is the government financed by by the central bank, which means by money taken out of thin air. Mm. And one way or another, it will show up. It will somehow percolate into the real economy. And I don't think it's going to be in, in, in turned up well. Are we going to see like a major crisis? I don't know, because a way out of each big crisis is injecting liquidity in the market. And if you are a government, then what is worse for you, collapse of uh, several major banks, collapse of the whole banking system, or a 10% inflation? Of course, it's 10% inflation. So You're going to lose your job immediately if everything collapses because somebody's going to say, you should do something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the question is whether they will be able to take timely actions and move the problem from sort of one shape where you have a crisis into another shape where you have a runaway inflation. 
Mm. It's funny because when I grew up, Russia was, you know, USSR and it was communist and China was communist. And so when I thought about those countries, that's what I thought. I thought, okay, we're capitalists. And then I went to China. I haven't yet been to Russia and I look forward someday to going there. I've been wanting to go for a while. But when I went to China, I was like, oh my God, they are deploying the weapon or the tool of capitalism here to develop their mm -hmm. economy. And I just thought, in fact, China has become more capitalist while America has become less capitalist. And I just wonder when we look at like a macro type of trader or investor like you, how do you, how do you handle that? Because you have like the typical rules of macro that are then influenced by, then you've got to predict central bank behavior. I remember when I started out 30 years ago, we didn't really try to predict central bank behavior so much. And I'm just curious, how can you do systematic when you're also trying to real think about, okay, could the Fed intervene here? Or in this case, let's just say we start to get some bank collapses. And then what happens is that the market starts tanking. We go into recession, all of a sudden the Fed reverses and they go back down to 0% interest rates. How do you handle that from a macro perspective? Well, I think that the first thing which you do as a systematic manager, you decide what you can model and what you can't model. Mm. And there are certain things we can't model. We can't model earthquakes. We can't model wars. And when they happen, it's more or less a toss of a coin for us. We may make money or lose money. On average, on such unpredictable, unmodelable events, let's assume that our result is 50-50, but mm. you take it as noise. Now, central banks. Central banks is a slightly different story because part of the decisions which are made by central banks are rational. They are actually very smart people. Of course, they have their own agenda Mm. And they will always protect their backs, but they are rational people and they have a mandate. So in many cases, what central banks do is dictated to them by the state of the economy. And this is modelable, at least to a certain degree. But in general, I think what we, we recognize is that we try to find a pretty weak signal in a very noisy environment. And the best you can hope for is that you have a collection of independent or at least uncorrelated weak signals, which when you combine them into a portfolio are going to give you positive investment returns. It doesn't mean that you are always going to be positive. There will be winning, winning periods of time and losing periods of time. But basically, you just know your limits. It's a collection of weak predictors, which you put together. I don't have a crystal ball. I have no idea what is going to happen tomorrow. I don't even know what is going to happen in the next hour. But I know that over time, this collection of weak signals put together is hopefully going to work. That's a, a great way of putting it weak signals because, you know, it's just, it's just impossible to ever find a super strong signal in the market because everybody's going to trade that away. And it's a combination of weak signals, which I think is, is a really great way. And we know that those signals can change and sometimes lose their, their effectiveness. How often do you like 
rethink about your structure or your model? Is that something that you're doing every day or every week, or is that something you do once a year? Well, I think about my model all the time. <laughs> <laughs> this is the process which never stops. However, I I do not reshuffle my model all the time. It's mm. very stable. And when I put things into the model, I do not try to time them. I try to put things into the model because I believe they are going to be good predictors in the next, I don't know, five, 10 years, whatever. They're just good predictors. And as I said, the model is very stable and we remove components from our model very rarely. Mm, We add more than we remove. Mm. And the reason for it is that if you have those weak predictors, you need to spend a lot of time making sure that they have stopped working. If you have a very strong, or you believe that you have a very strong investment strategy or a very strong predictor, and for some period of time, let's say for a year or two, it didn't perform in line with your expectations, yeah, sure, you can just remove it. When you trade high frequency, sometimes it may it may be to, enough to have like three months of experience to say, no, this thing doesn't, doesn't work anymore. Mm. In our world, we, we trade very slowly, and one or two years is not going to give you enough information about the performance of your individual predictors. You may look at it, you may think, okay, it's not working, should I, should I remove it? And then you give it the, the benefit of the doubt, and you wait for another year, and all of a sudden, this factor becomes the best in your strategy. Yeah. <laughs> I have a stock selection model I've developed over the last 15 years. And in one particular market, it underperformed or let's say neutral performed for about three years. And given that I'm a bit lazy, I just, just kept going with it and just kept following it. And then in year four, it took off. And it was like, and, and I always worried when I was in the middle of it, that if I start fiddling with the model, I'm going to create a new model that attempts to outperform in a flat market, which we were in a flat market. There wasn't really any Mm -hmm. strong momentum. And then if I then modified the model to try to get it to outperform in a flat market, then when the market started to rise again, I'm now going to have a model that does not outperform in a rising market. And that's why I felt like I just stick with it. You know, I made some small changes, but I stuck with it. And in the long run, it ended up working. Of course, your clients aren't always that patient. They're not, but I have to be. Yeah, that's the point, because they're not, and other people aren't. And I think that's one of the big values that someone like yourself brings is the focus on the model, the stability of the model, and sticking with the model. So, yep, that's, that makes sense. One last question I have for you before we get to the big question is, you know, what's your prediction about where this whole thing ends with what's going on with Russia, Ukraine, U.S.? I mean, it's sometimes I get pretty darn scared and I haven't lived in the U.S. for 30 years. So I have a very different view upon it than a lot of my American friends. But I'm just curious, like, where do you think this is going to go? Well, first of all, I hope that it will end sooner rather than later. Because the most important thing about this conflict is that people die every day. And this is what I absolutely hate about it. Mm. 
So to me, the sooner it ends, it ends the better. Speaking about it from purely sort of investment perspective, trying to understand how the continuation of this conflict is going to pan out in the securities market, in the financial markets. I think that the markets won't pay much attention to how exactly this mm. conflict ends. The important thing will be that it will end. And this will be very positive for the market as a whole. It will be most likely much more positive for Europe than for the US because Europe has lost a lot because of this war. And nobody really knows how mm. things are going to develop. I don't think that Putin knows. I don't think that Biden knows. I don't think that Zelensky knows. And I think a lot of decisions are made on the fly, Yeah, basically, as we go. And I think that Russia will remain isolated for a long period of time, mm. which is very bad for the country. Sanctions are going to stay for a long time. Maybe some of them will relax a little, but in general, sanctions do not relax very quickly. This is what we know from history. I think that the union with cooperation, whatever you call it, with China is becoming like paramount for mm. Russia. It's hugely important. It has never been as important in the past. I think that this whole thing may be quite problematic for the dollar as the global reserve currency, because eventually any currency is just, you know, any currency is based on trust. Yep. And if people cannot trust that they can freely pay in US dollars for whatever reason, for example, mm. because they oppose the US politics or policy or they wage the war, even they wage the war and okay, now you can't pay using your money. I think that this issue of trust is becoming quite significant and it's not very easy. It's not going to happen overnight or even in five or 10 years, but I think that people will take note of what has happened. Russia is not going to be a winner in this conflict long term, regardless of how much territory they gain in Ukraine. Ukraine is going to be a winner in this conflict because they have lost so many people and it's not unlikely that they will have to cede part of their territory mm. in the end. So I think that the US elections next year are going to have a very significant impact on when and how this conflict ends. Because we all know that Ukraine needs help from the US and from Western countries. And at the time when this help stops, it will be very problematic for Ukraine to continue. So there are a lot of things which, which are here at interplay. And as I said, nobody knows exactly how and when this conflict is going to end. And to me, the most significant thing is to have it finished as soon as possible. Yep. And I think, you know, the fact is, is that my view is if the US being the strongest power in the world has the ability to commence talks immediately. And, you know, the US could do that. And I feel sad that the US is not doing that. And so, Ultimately, 
that's something that I wish to see. I think when I, I went out to my clients about a year ago, I told them that we are in World War 2.5 and it just finished. And it was America against, and I always ask my clients to guess who was America fighting. And they say, Russia, China. And I say, no, they were fighting Europe. Yep. And my argument is that the long game for the US is they're on a war path for China. And the world is not going along with it. The global South is not going along with that. India is not going along with that. And many other nations don't want to see that. And in order for America to be successful in that war, they've got to make sure that Europe is on their side and not connected to China. And I would say that the US has capitalized on this situation in Ukraine to make sure that Europe is subservient to America's desires now, which is very hard now to break free from America militarily, politically, economically, you know, for sources of energy and all that. And my prediction is that World War III is China and US in Africa. Well, Africa is certainly very rich in resources. I'm not sure about the actual military conflict between the US and China. One thing which is absolutely clear, and you have just said it, is that the US is a winner in this conflict because geopolitically they now have Europe at their knees and losing a lot of industrial power to the US. So the US is a clear winner. Turkey is a clear winner of the situation because a lot of goods traffic has been rejected by Turkey. Mm. Some former Soviet republics like Armenia or Georgia or Kazakhstan have been clear winners because a lot of very competent Russian people, competent professionals, moved there and they are you know, basically building their IT industries now using Russian programmers. And uh, so there are a lot of unintended consequences. Yeah. From a geopolitical perspective, if you think about it, China, Russia and Europe, are the same continent <laughs> and the us is a little bit you know far away so just imagine the union of china russia and europe it would be a major force so the us did have a geopolitical reason to do what they did mm. yeah. yep. if you leave aside any moral considerations and think about let's say next hundred years then there might be some you know some use in what the U.S. have done here. Mm, yeah. Well, I took an extra long time to talk with you for the intro because of your excellent experience and knowledge, as well as, you know, you've got a clear view, I would say, on what's going on, having, you know, come from different backgrounds and lived in different places that I think give you a perspective. So I appreciate you sharing some of your knowledge on that. And now, it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstance leading up to it and then tell us your story. <laughs> yeah, well, I was thinking about which of my investments to call the worst. And interestingly enough, when I was thinking about them, none of them were investment where I lost money. Mm. None. Interesting. And I would probably say that the definition of the worst investment is the investment from which you learn the most. 
because if you don't learn from your bad investments, then you should be doing something else. So my worst investment in these terms was related to the topic which we discussed in the beginning of this conversation, which is the Russian crisis. So Asian crisis, oil prices go down, stock prices go down, the ruble is going down. I was still working in Russia at that time. And the Russian central bank established a cap. It was called currency corridor. So they set the ranges for the ruble, but the lower part was not really interesting. The interesting part was how much you know, dollar can appreciate against the ruble or ruble can fall against the dollar. And everybody understood that in such a macroeconomic environment, ruble was doomed to depreciate. However, there was a promise of the central bank. And the most popular trade of summer 1998 was the currency forward trade where Russian banks believed the central bank and bought the ruble, and all the foreign banks played against them and sold the ruble. And just to explain, maybe not all listeners know how the currency forward market works. Basically, a forward trade is a trade where you promise to buy or to sell a certain amount of, in this case, currency at a certain price on a certain day in the future. And if on that day, for example, you have sold the currency, and on that day, the currency is really cheaper, then you make money. If the currency has happened to be more expensive than the price you fixed in your contract, you make money. Sorry, you lose money mm. because you sold, it has become more expensive, so you, you lost money. Yeah. And so it was like Russian banks believed it was a money-making machine for them because they had central banks behind them. And all the foreign banks were just, okay, that's, that's just not going to happen. That's unsustainable. Russia didn't have any currency reserves to think of, uh, to speak of. And I think the foreign reserves were in single billions of dollars, mm. uh, like $2 billion or $3 billion. And for a country like Russia to have $2 billion in reserves, it's like for you to have $5 in your pocket. Right, exactly. So in that case, just to explain it to the listeners out there, so here we have Russian banks believing that the Russian central bank will support the currency, but also knowing that the amount of foreign reserves that they had available to support the currency were limited. And the foreign investors were looking at that situation and saying, no, that currency is going to eventually collapse and I'm going to make a bet on that collapse. Is that correct? Yes, Okay. exactly. Yep. And to add to this picture, at that time, the ruble was already trading in Chicago on Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Mm -hmm. So we had practically two markets. And the forward price of the ruble on the over-the-counter market, sort of out-of-exchange market in Russia, was higher for the ruble than in Chicago. So in principle, you could sell the ruble in Russia, buy it in Chicago, and this was like free money. Mm. So what we did, 
we entered into a forward contract with a Russian bank under the Russian law. It was one of the biggest Russian banks. It was one of the biggest then. It's still one of the biggest. And we sold a very significant amount of the Russian ruble against the US dollar with the delivery on, on the 15th of September, 1998. And this trade, I think, was entered into in July or something like this of 98. And then- would have would have made sense because the, the Asian crisis happened on July 3rd, roughly, the first week of July at the end of the second quarter. And then maybe you went into that trade then, and then in September, it was coming. Now, when, when this trade, was it you were expecting that the ruble would get stronger or weaker, weaker. relative to the dollar? Weaker, weaker, weaker. Okay. yes. It. So the price of our trade was, I still remember it, strangely enough, it was six ruble, 37 kopecks for $1. So at that price, we sold. So if ruble was, let's say, 10 or 15 or whatever, higher than 637 on the 15th of September, we would have won. Cool. So the 17th of August, a beautiful, warm, sunny morning, and 10 a.m., just a few minutes before 10 a.m. Russian time, well, Moscow time, Russia defaults. What Russia did at that time was quite extraordinary mm. because Russia defaulted on its debt denominated in the national currency in rubles. And at the same time, they stopped supporting the ruble. So they devalued. You don't do such things at the same time. You do either one or another because you can print an unlimited amount of rubles. So you could pay your bondholders. So just one of the two things. You never do the two together. And this was a little bit unexpected. But nevertheless, this is what they did. And we felt, okay, how smart we are. It's really great. So genius. Absolutely. And by the middle of September, ruble goes down to around 16 rubles per dollar. So we for the, were for the listeners there, when we say the ruble goes down, you're meaning the ruble depreciated relative to the US dollar. And when that depreciation happened, it went from the 6.37 up and it rose in value, which means a depreciation. It rose to what? To around 16. Okay, got it. So it meant that on every dollar, we won 10 rubles. Great? Hmm. Not so fast. Because this is not how the price of the currency is determined for the sake of settling forward contracts. There was a special mechanism, and only Russian banks were allowed to participate in the trading which led to setting the price. So it was like pre-market session on the 15th of September where only Russian banks could trade. And as I said before, all the Russian banks stood in exactly the same position. They needed a stronger ruble. And guess what? On the 14th of September, we have the ruble at around 16. And that morning session ends up setting the price of the ruble at 8.25 and a half, 8.225. And then, of course, when the actual trading starts, ruble goes down again and the price just you know goes up to around 15, 16 again. Mm. So 
the price at which our foreign contract was about to settle was not at 16, it was 825. Still very good. Not as 825 because it was based upon the pre-market or pre-opening price set by the Russian banks. Yes. Okay. Yes. So we had the difference between 637 and 825 multiplied by the size of the contract, which we won. Okay. So 825 is worse than 16, but still, still okay. Still profitable. Still profitable. And then the most interesting part begins because we didn't get paid. And then we realized that other Russian banks were not in the mood to pay either. And we thought, okay, what are we going to do? And they, they weren't paying these types of contracts or specifically you guys? <clears throat> these types of, these type of contracts. Okay. And here I think we made, we didn't understand what was going to happen. And mm -hmm. we decided that, okay, we still have a legal system and we should just go to court. So we went to court, we won, they appealed, we won. There were two levels of course of appeal in Russia at that time. I'm, I haven't been doing business in Russia for over 20 years, so I don't know how it works now. But at that time, before you come to the Supreme Court, you have two levels of course of appeal. So they come to the second level of the court of appeal, and that one sends the case to the lowest court again. We won. They appeal. We go to the first level of the court of appeal. We win. And at that time, the most interesting thing happens, because at that time, the Supreme Court takes a decision in a similar case where one of the major Russian banks was sued by one of the major French banks because of the non-payment on a mm. similar contract. And guess what? The Russian Supreme Court decides that a currency forward transaction should not be protected by the law because it's akin to betting. So betting in Russia is not protected by law. Mm. And currency forward, which is a very legitimate transaction, which yeah. I don't know, probably trillions of dollars mm. change hands in uh, currency forward transactions every day. And at that time, they decided that it was like betting. And then we decided, okay, enough is enough. We've been very clearly told what to expect if we continue this, this litigation. So we just dropped our hands and that was it. And were you able to close the position or was it all a loss or how did it end as far as the final transactions? There was no payment. Yeah. It ended up in uh, zero payments. We lost legal fees and um, it was not a huge amount of money, yep. but basically it was zero. Nobody paid anyone. And how long was the legal process? It was around a year. I think it was pretty fast in Russia at that time, just over a year, I would say. Right. And uh, we were lucky because, as I said, Ruble was at the same time trading in Chicago. So you could, you could have this arbitrage transaction where you buy a cheaper Ruble in Chicago and sell the more expensive Ruble in Russia. And I know people who have done this. And they had massive trades, buying ruble in Chicago and selling it in Russia. Mm. And guess what? 
when you have two legs in such a transaction, in order to actually make money, you need both legs to work. Now, of course, in Chicago, there was an enforcement mechanism. So they had to pay in Chicago. They had to actually buy the ruble in Chicago. But in Russia, they didn't get paid. Mm. So mm. they bought this worthless currency, which went from 6 to 16 in Chicago, and they will not get paid in in Russia. And that was a really massive loss. This was one of the arbitrage trades, which blew up spectacularly. Yep. And many people lost a lot of money on that trade while being absolutely right about the direction of the currency. Uh, what an interesting story. And I, I love the history of it and all of that. How would you describe what you learned from it? Well, the first lesson is that being right and making money are two very, very different things. The second thing is that infrastructure risks matter. It's important where you buy and where you sell and who is your counterparty. You may have a winning trade, and this winning trade may actually turn out to be a losing trade if you have wrong counterparties, wrong infrastructure, and this was one of those situations. Mm. The third thing is that if your your part, if your trade is a part of a of a trade which presents a systemic risk, then it's not the fact that you are going to get paid. Because it's pretty clear what would have happened at that time if Russian banks were to pay according to their forward contracts. There would be no banking system in Russia at all, and probably mm. no Russia at all. Right. And of course, the government and the central banks and the legal system did everything they could to avoid this. So if your trade is so bad, that when you win, it presents a systemic risk, there might be non-market ways to deal with you. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I would say the, the lesson that I learned is government makes the rules. And now we're also in kind of a hostile situation with war going on and all that, that it's the US government also that's making rules. And you may think that you've made a good bet, but you know, there's no telling what can happen. And I think that's uh, that's really such a big lesson. I think people forget about that, particularly in the foreign exchange markets where there's a sovereignty issue, you know, that, that governments and banks are going to take, you know, sometimes extreme actions that you're just never going to be able to predict. Yeah, absolutely. And we have just <clears throat> seen it in the US, right? This whole situation with Silicon Valley Bank, what the Fed did was against the rules, right? They just created the rules on the fly because they couldn't afford the banking system collapse, right? So on one hand, it's good that people who deposited their money in SVB did not lose the money. On the other hand, this introduces new risks. Basically, mm -hmm. it's just kicking the can down the road. Yeah. Somebody will have to pay eventually. So based upon what you learned from this and what you've learned, you know, continue to learn in your career, let's kind of go back in time and let's think of a young person who's kind of facing a similar type of trade. <laughs> they see an opportunity, you know, going on and in a unique place. And it, it, it seems like it's, they really got it right. What's one 
action that you'd recommend they take to avoid suffering the same fate? Well, in a situation like this, you need to think about non-market risks. This is what, what people very often forget. Non-market risks are really paramount in a transaction like this. And I would say that this is, in experience, this is one of the most important lessons from this particular trade. In general, I think that it's hugely important to understand who you are in business with, who your business partners are, and these have to be honest and dependable, dependable people. I was extremely lucky to have very good partners earlier on in my career, and I'm very grateful to them mm. for the experience I had, you know, being in business with them. Yeah. So many uh, great lessons here. And what is a resource either of yours or any other resource that you'd recommend for our listeners that you think would be good for them to learn from or to gain from? You know, I'm quite old fashioned probably, but I will recommend a couple of books. One of these books is Market Wizards by Jack Schwager. Yes which is a book of interviews with top traders. And I personally learned a lot from this book. And another one is Reminiscences of the Stock Operator Mm -hmm. by Edwin Lefebvre in other classics. I think that there is one more book which is worth reading. It's Rick's Bookstabber, Demon of Our Own Design. What is it? Demon of Our Own Design. The author is Rick Bookstabber. Okay. Yep. So these are my recommendations. Excellent. Fantastic. All right. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Well, I'm a hedge fund manager. So my goal for the next 12 months is to have good performance. Perfect. And I I think with your experience, you will. Well, thank you very much. I hope so. Yeah. Listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. And this story, I think, really helped us. If you've not yet joined that mission, just go to myworstinvestmentever.com and join my free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter, Reduce Risk in Your Life. As we conclude, Igor, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of AE Stotts Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Thank you very much, Andrew, for having me. It was a great conversation. Thank you very much for it. Well, you know, last 12, 13 months have been very difficult for many people. And I really hope that the next 12 months will be much, much, much much better for all of you. Amen. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today. We added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.